Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It can feel overwhelming. Climate change is one of the biggest threats we face. It requires people, industry, and governments to do their part, and it needs to happen fast. Here's some good news. Right across Canada, people are taking action now towards a greener, cleaner future. Some are installing renewable energy. Others are banding together to fight development that could make the crisis worse. And still more, and here I mean young people in particular, are using their power of persuasion and their smarts to lay claim to a better future. As we begin the new year, we check in with people we spoke to in previous shows to find out about the hope, energy and strategy they bring to their climate fight and what's at stake in 2022. Welcome to What on Earth, the show that knows there's no planet B. I'm Laura Lynch. We've rung in a new year, but an old debate about a proposed highway in Ontario rages on. It is being referred to as the zombie highway. Highway 413. It was based on an idea first proposed decades ago. It was killed by the Ontario Liberals in 2018, only to be resurrected by the Progressive Conservatives when they took office later that year. Premier Doug Ford says his government has started on preliminary designs for the route. Back in April 2021, you might have heard many people share with us their concerns about the highway and its very climate impacts. The biggest issue is that that this thing would essentially be a highway to sprawl. If you were trying to make the greenhouse gas emission problem worse, um, this would be a very, very good strategy to follow. Paving over 2,000 hectares of land, crossing the Humber and the Credit watersheds, and spending $10 billion to do so, and impacting all the communities along that route for a highway that seems to be really only for the developers that want to expropriate land and and build alongside it. One of the reasons why the 413 is is not the best idea for this region is that money could be much better spent um, if it was invested in, in things like public transit here. I'm saying as, as an individual that is a conservative-minded uh, supporter, so I, I tend to be you know, more an individual that, that is proactive on, on the business development side. You know, it isn't business at all costs. That last voice you heard, the self-described conservative-minded supporter, is Tony Mulfera. When we reached him in April, he'd recently gotten over his fear of knocking on strangers' doors. His goal? To help spread the word about the 413 and what he worries will be sacrificed for its construction. He lives in Kleinberg, Ontario, and that's where we reached him for an update. Tony, hello. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Now, this controversy, it hasn't died down since you and I last spoke, uh, but Premier Doug's government believes it could win them the next provincial election. And I'm wondering how you feel about Highway 413 becoming a campaign issue. I actually think it's a, it's a bit of a godsend for us as a community because, you know, I think, quite frankly, the 
biggest challenge we had right from the start was just this this vacuum of information and a lack of awareness. And and I've got to tell you that uh, if you read the papers at all or listen to the news, it is now you know front and center as a, as an item of interest. So um, I think it was a very good thing for us. So I'm a bit surprised to hear you say that, but I, I think I understand. You've told us though that you're a conservative-minded voter. You're not in agreement with Doug Ford on Highway 413. Why not? Well, you know, interestingly, I, I am conservative uh, just just by by nature, but I think I'm a socially responsible conservative, and I think the highway is is you know, at best old thinking, and you know, at worst, it, you know, something that is going to be a financial and environmental social anchor on us as a population. So, so let's talk about it. Just remind us what you you think it's going to cost in terms of the environment. You know, it it cuts through, you know, some prime uh, green and white belt lands, uh, things that we should be protecting. Uh, it you know, creates sprawl. Uh, it attracts growth on the sensitive lands that are that are, you know, near the highway. And, you know, I, I think it also brings more traffic, pollution and greenhouse gases. So I, I think we're going in the wrong direction. And, you know, in Ontario, uh, we're giving uh, little attention to the environment. Building a highway is just old thinking. It's, it's, it's lazy thinking and it's, the, it's wrong on so many fronts. Uh, this issue inspired you to, to start doing things like door knocking in your community for the first time. I'm wondering what you've been hearing from people recently. Well, I think uh, this ties back to your very first point. You know, I think when we started going door to door, um, it was just a, a, a total lack of awareness uh, about the highway. And for the most part, people were saying, I thought that, you know, this was gone, that, that had been had been stopped. Uh, you know, I, I think the government, you know, making this a, a, an election platform has has really opened up the door. Uh, I think what we what we're doing now is we're we're uh, participating at you know community events, organized rallies, uh, information sessions that we want to you know put on for the communities uh, to to simply continue to increase awareness. And we found that you know if if I had to say you know eighteen, nineteen out of twenty people that we talked to are supportive and uh, against the highway. So those are pretty significant numbers. So. The government saying, you know, we are going to build a road, uh, a highway, has given us some opportunity to build on that awareness. Something else that's happened since I last talked to you, we knew that the Ford government has been saying the highway is the solution to gridlock in the greater Toronto area, but um, the federal government has now stepped in to conduct its own environmental impact review, and, and that process could conceivably take years. Is that a good thing in your mind? So I, I think the fact that the federal government has decided to step in when, in fact, um, the criteria might have said they didn't have to has, has said that we're concerned. I think on its own, you know, stalling or, or you know, people perceiving this as a stall tactic is, is, is both wrong because it's not. I think we, we, we need to protect the environment, both green and white belt lands, because once you once you use it, you'll never get it back, and you know it's a resource that that's pretty limited. I think if if you know you combine that with 
looking at alternatives, then then I think we're doing what is, you know, either fiscally uh, and environmentally and socially prudent. Uh, and and I I welcome the fact that the government you know has stepped in. There is an election slated for June. Absolutely. What what's your strategy between now and then? I think a couple of things, you know, what we want to do is make sure, number one, that the federal environmental assessment does proceed. But I, I, I think, you know, as we as we peel the onion, as we look at this a little bit more, what we're realizing, and, and some of this is old news, it just seems to have kind of gone away, is that we still have an issue with, with traffic, but building a 400 series highway is, is not the solution. It's an easy answer, but it's not the solution. There's alternatives. Cities like New York, Hong Kong, London, to name a few, have have developed you know world class transit, uh, public transit uh, systems, and they've given their commuters uh, a meaningful transit alternative to simply jumping in a car and driving. Tony, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you to do. Are are you at home today? Uh, I am. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could sort of remind listeners what your surroundings are like to give people a sense of what, of what you are fighting for. What do you see out the window? Yeah, I mean, when I look out the window, I, I see, you know, I see uh, green, I see trees, uh, I see, you know, a certain amount of, of uh, tranquility. I don't, you know, I hear noise, but I don't hear a lot of noise. In Vaughan, where I am, um, this would be the last piece of white belt and green belt land uh, that would be developed, and and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a shame to lose that, uh, and you know, once it's gone, it's gone. You you can't replace it. You know, Mother Nature put it here uh, for us to enjoy, not to not to drive over. Tony Malfara, this new year of 2022 is going to bring uh, more fighting and more campaigning for you, I suspect, and we'll continue to follow it. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Take care. Now, we know the 413 is a story a lot of you care about because we heard from you, and we really do love hearing from all of you about your climate concerns and solutions on this story or on anything else. You can always email us, earth at cbc.ca, or you can reach us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth, or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. Love to hear from you. As the school year kicked off in the fall, we looked at climate change and education. We heard from two high school students demanding that their education reflect the urgency of the impacts of a warming world that they did not create. And some of them want to build something entirely new. Hi, my name is Sophia B, and I'm currently a grade 12 student at Lord Green Secondary School. So the group that I'm part of is called Climate Education Reform BC. We're a student-led organization composed of high school students from across British Columbia. We have our broad vision of shaping this reform to an education system that accurately addresses the climate crisis and empowers the students to actually be a part of the solution. 
Since we first spoke to Sophia, the impacts of our greenhouse gas emissions have shown up again and with force, including here where I live in B.C., with recent and deadly landslides and floods. Science tells us events like these are getting worse, and they're happening more often as emissions continue to climb. It's a lesson at the heart of climate change. But in the wake of all the damage and loss, did Sophia's teachers make those links? Not at all. We had one teacher, maybe, out of the five classes that I'm taking right now. It was more just talking about it like, oh, what a terrible thing happened. But there was no discussion about sort of why did it happen or what sort of could have led to the increased risk of flooding and sort of what the solution is. So it was very much just sort of, yeah, this was in the news, but not where do we go from here? And there was no clear connection drawn between what was happening with the flooding and the climate crisis. Sophia says that needs to change. And here's why. I think the key thing is that we would have First of all, an informed generation that has all the accurate information to properly understand the climate crisis, its causes, as well as its solutions. And in that way, when we have all these people who are educated, we have this really strong force for change. Now, since September, Sophia's group has met with BC's Ministry of Education twice, and Sophia showed up to both meetings with the same question. How are you going to ensure that youth voices are actually listened to and the input is acted upon? She says the answer the ministry gave was more about power than input, that giving youth absolute power would be undemocratic. Like, absolute power is neither practical nor necessary, really. But my main issue with that was that it sounds like that they don't really have any plans to ensure that youth voices are actually taken seriously. And so what we'd like to see is youth and the ministry being able to have sort of discussions like equal partners able to shape this work alongside each other. Sophia's group has several requests for the ministry, but she says the most important is the need for a youth advisory committee. I think it's really about making sure that we have a space set, established, for us to be able to consistently share our voices. Only then will we really be able to push for all our other needs. The ministry says it's planning to ensure teachers have access to resources that include B.C. data and Indigenous knowledge on climate change. And Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside expects to meet again with Sophia's group this spring. But Sophia wants action, not more talk. And she wonders whether the government will act as fast as she wants. Coming out of that ministry meeting, um, we were actually quite disappointed because a lot of it sounded like there were so many delays. There was no clear timeline. Um, it seemed like they were thinking years ahead in terms of when like the full changes would really come in place. And so part of it just made me think like, you know, if the ministry isn't going to do all this work um, and like move as fast as we need them to, I think youth are just going to step up and do it. Because we feel so strongly about the climate crisis, I think that is particularly unique to our generation. Uh, we're one of the most committed to dedicating our time to the climate crisis. Like, I'm really proud of my generation for that, but I also hope that older generations can see that and sort of support our efforts. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... 
What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a first for us on What on Earth, a check-in on some of the stories that really stuck with us. And our team was itching to find out what happened with one story from 2020 that's breaking some ground here in British Columbia. It's a geothermal energy project. Now, a little reminder on that. The methods vary, but at its heart, some experts like Steve Grasby describe geothermal as mining for heat. Grasby is a research scientist with the Geological Survey of Canada. You know, the sun will probably explode before we run out of heat from geothermal energy. Okay, so there's no shortage of heat that we could convert to energy. And the work Grasby has done uses a treasure trove of data that outlines where we can find these heat sources across Canada. It's all from the mid-1970s to mid-80s, during the energy crisis, when Canada kicked into gear seeking out alternatives to fossil fuels. We found it in our own files and we found it in you know, boxes in people's garages. <laughs> it was at a, a time when you know, everything was recorded on paper, right? And then paper got put into boxes when people retired and then boxes got moved around. And so we, we did a lot of uh, sleuthing and, and just tracked down all the, the data that they collected during that time and were able to sort of rescue it. So science tells us that we have to get off of fossil fuels more urgently than ever before. So rescuing all those files gives geothermal new promise again. There are just a handful of projects in the works across Canada, and one of them is in northern British Columbia at the site of the Clark Lake oil and gas field. Fort Nelson First Nation got the geothermal rights to that site, and Charlene Gale is the chief. We first spoke to her in November of 2020, and at that time she was still trying to fundraise the rest of the cash to actually make it happen. We reached her again for an update on the project. Chief Gale, hello. Hi, Laura. I just wanted to thank you for welcoming the Fort Nelson First Nation back to your show. And we're glad to have you back. And one of the things I want to ask you about is the name of your geothermal project because it's changed since we last spoke. What is it now? Yeah, so the new name is uh, Tudeka. And um, this summer, we had the opportunity to invite our, our treaty partners and our members to the site to do a blessing ceremony where our elder Angus Dickey, along with our amazing drummers, blessed the site. They offered tobacco and they gave thanks to our ancestors for this truly remarkable gift. Um, member Chrissa Dickey, who is an inspiring writer and artist, she designed our logo and she shared with everyone that was in attendance the new name, uh, Tudika, which means steam water. Steam water. And that's what it is. When we last spoke to you, you still needed support from the provincial government. And, and I gather you got the support? 
Yeah, so a lot has changed since then, and we have come together, um, you know, with the Northern Rockies Regional Municipality, the BC government, and the federal government. Um, we know how important it is for the North and for Canada because it's the first of its kind. Um, you know, also net zero by 2050, there's a lot of conversation happening right now in this regard. And Indigenous people across Canada are really leading this transition. So we're happy that our project is 100% Indigenous owned by our nation. And, and you've now drilled your first test wells. What have you learned about the viability of the site for geothermal energy? Well, right now, at, as we speak, um, we have Baker Hughes with their electrical submersible pump on site. So with that, we're checking on the brine of the well, checking out the chemical composition, the heat and the volume. And as of today, we are hearing good things. So that gets me really excited. Um, we want to know what is happening down there and how corrosive the material is, because that's really going to give us the information we need to design the project. And it looks like we have a high commercial um, project at this point. But after we're done what we're doing now, we're going to know a little bit more. So it'll be exciting time as we go along with this project. So what difference will it make for your community then? So, you know, with the Fort Nelson First Nation Territory and all our neighbours up north, we're running off of, um, you know, diesel generation or um, natural gas generation from the, at this point, the Fort Nelson gas plant, which um, is steam powered and sends their power to BC Hydro. Um, in the past, this facility has been one of the largest polluters in BC and one of the highest taxpayers. So this is a real great opportunity for us to do something new in the north and, you know, use this power to um, create other economic opportunities by using green energy power. Right. And you've been thinking about geothermal powered greenhouses. Where do things stand with that plan? Well, that's the exciting part about this project is that we don't have to have the facility actually built. I mean, that's supposed to be ready for turnkey 2025. But what this means that if um, after this testing, if the heat is right, um, we could actually start building greenhouses in the next year or two. And right now what I'm hearing is that the temperatures are, are looking good. Now, you've been hoping the project would offer job opportunities for people in the Fort Nelson First Nation. What progress have you made on that? I have to say that I'm happy to announce that we have our first two employees from the uh, our nation school and they're youth that left our community to pursue their educational dreams and now they have come back to work for our people. So like this is what this project is really about is finding opportunities for our members providing jobs and training. I know that we have submitted um, for different grants over a million dollars. So you, you've had support from the provincial government, the federal government, you're talking about applications for grants. What more support do you need at this point? One of the challenges that we currently have is that the province of BC is not offering EPAs and that would uh, really help us with this project because we're going to need an EPA in order to um, you know, partner with the province to sell the energy. Tell me a little bit more what you mean by EPAs. An EPA is an electricity purchase agreement. You know, it really would help us be able to sell our power back to BC Hydro. And there's only a handful of them that have been offered to First Nations that may have been affected by some of the projects that they're building in British Columbia. And so um, in order for us to be successful, we have to get over that challenge. And I think that by coming together and being creative, we really can. 
Given what you have seen happen in, in other parts of, of BC, most recently, but just within the last month and a half, two months, how much more important does a project like this become for your First Nation? So we're seeing what happens, um, you know, due to climate change globally. I mean, a lot of people are affected and, you know, there's a supply chain that, you know, could be, you know, shut down for a long period of time. And that really affects the people of the North because we really rely on the goods and services that come from other areas. And so if we're able to grow our own food and really bring something to the people that live up North, I think that it would be more affordable and um, fresh and the ability for people to um, come join us in Fort Nelson and be a part of this project in agriculture. And I think it would be awesome if we could send food down south that is fresh, you know, and provide that service and do like a little bit of a, a reverse story where we're always getting goods coming in from the south. But, um, you know, when I talk about this project being, you know, an oil and gas field transitioning into the renewable project. I just, I just believe our people are so visionary. Um, we may not have all the answers, but the more we can bring people together, the more opportunity we'll have and the more we can really make this a reality. And I, I just, I can't say enough about it. I'm just really excited about it and I, what it can mean for us. Yeah, I can hear that in your voice. Chief Gale, I wish you all the best for the new year. Thank you for talking to me. Well, I just uh, really thank you and your team for uh, reaching out. And, you know, I hope that uh, in the future, as we move along this project, we can share some more information with you. Uh, yeah, we'll be back to you for sure. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be great. Maybe uh, next time we'll be able to invite you up and you can join us and take you for a tour of our, our territory. Cool. Um, the last group oh. I got to take them up to the hot springs and oh, we enjoyed the night. And it was the most amazing day because the sky was completely clear. You could see the Milky Way and a billion stars. And it's just so beautiful. I'm there. Okay, <laughs> I'm coming. Yes, we'll okay. get you there, Laura. All right. Might have to bring your team now that they heard that. <laughs> okay, take okay, care. Talk Bye. to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. I think that's a great idea. As soon as we get this pandemic thing out of the way, we're going to take the whole team up there and do a show from there in the new year. So now you've heard from just a few of the people who we checked in with, but there are more. So here's a little taste of what's coming up next week. The reason that people should be in support of the voting age, people should want the voting age to be lowered, is because it's better for democracy. It's better for our country. We would have a much more future-focused political environment and things would change. You know, it's actually helpful for everyone if young people have more of a voice. What I hope will happen in terms of this resolution on the right to a healthy environment, it will be a catalyst for those types of changes. I mean, we live in a world where 7 million people every year die prematurely because of air pollution. So now countries are on the record saying we recognize our citizens have a right to breathe clean air. That means they have to bring in air quality standards. They have to have plans to meet those standards and they have to take actions to meet those standards. So I really think this UN resolution is going to save literally millions of lives going forward. What are they talking about? Come back next week and find out. And in the meantime, get in touch because we love hearing from you. Maybe you're getting active in your community on climate or you've got a question you want us to look into or simply just to say hi and tell us what you think of the program. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca, on Twitter at CBC What on Earth, or you can follow me at Laura Lynch CBC. 
For now, thanks as always to the What on Earth team. Associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel, engineer Matthias Wolfson, Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.